This is a download from BFM 89.9, the business station. Hello, and with me, Cam Rasselon, today we have the returns of, he is, um, well, he's, he's BFM's tech guru. He's also my tech guru. Um, he is Matt Armitage. Hi, Cam. How are you doing today? I'm good. I'm good. And she is, uh, well, she's a producer at BFM, and um, she used to be on the airwaves, uh, not so much these days. Is that true? She is Julian Yap. Hello. Hi, Matt. Hi, Cam. Hi, Julian. I hope you've all um, had your vaccinations. I've had mine, number one. You too? Uh, mine is uh, upcoming, forthcoming. And yep, mine too. All right, cool, cool. Okay, so our three topics this week will be topic number one is are you looking forward to or do you even want to go back to the old events of yesteryear? I, I got that wrong, Matt. What was it? It's the... Well, do we want to go back to that kind of culture of in-person live events? Live events, that's the word. And uh, uh, topic number two is NFTs or uh, non-fungible tokens. And finally, topic number three is something that I've often wondered about is whatever happened to the romantic comedy? So uh, with topic number one, Matt, uh, are you looking forward to live events? I'm really not sure. I mean, one of the reasons I think I wanted to, to bring this up on the show today was I spoke at a, a club industry event last year. I was invited to speak uh, and to talk about what uh, the potential future of, uh, of clubs, of what live entertainment might look like and how brands can come in and, and help people. And I was thinking while I was there that, you know, even after we come out of the, the pandemic, once the restrictions are eased, I think the future of a lot of live events is going to look very different to what we've enjoyed in the past. And part of that, I think, is not going to be just for the reasons of uh, health and quarantine, but I think we've experienced a change over the, the last kind of 12 to, to 15 months as well. So it's this idea, I think, that do we want to go back to this new normal or should this be a time for the people who run events, whether it's music events, whether it's, you know, music, art or book festivals, whether it's theatre events, whether it's cinema uh, and, of course, sporting events. Is this a time to rethink that model of having hundreds or thousands or even tens of thousands of people all standing shoulder to shoulder in spaces, all focused on this kind of one point? Uh, Julian, are you young person? <laughs> um, uh, for me, I think the one that the thing that comes to mind first because I know it the best is film festivals. Um, I, I, we, we, we don't have that many here. We have the very great KL one that um, runs every year. But in the over the last year, um, we've seen so many Sundance can they moved completely online because obviously people couldn't attend, and but that also meant a lot of people outside of. I mean, we didn't get them here, of course. We, they were still region-locked. Access to those films were region-locked. But it did, it did mean that a lot of people in a lot of small towns were able to watch those films. So um, the Sundance Film Festival is, is coming up soon, I think next month, and Cannes will be coming up soon. And they've removed all of their um, online viewing options completely when that has offered so many out of out of you know big city people to be able to attend but also people who have issues getting to these big cities because of accessibility or even you know small things like closed captioning it kind of doesn't make sense to me getting rid of accessibility when you manage to fix a problem why would you remove that option 
but like like you said, Matt, I think it needs you. You know, it should be adapted. But by the way, the the examples you gave just now were they free or no? No, you had to pay, but right. it was still um, it was so there was still that barrier of entry. But some of the barriers of entry were taken away, which I think was it can only you know it can only make an industry better if you're including more people. Yeah, I'd agree with Julian. I would say, first of all, that actually, I mean, this is a very kind of premature talk in Malaysia. We've got the highest numbers we've ever had, and, and it doesn't look like it's going to abate anytime soon. Uh, but I guess it's always good to look ahead. Uh, I'm not I'm not a huge uh, live event kind of guy. Um, I, I, when Matt um, came up with the idea, I'm trying to remember the last gig I went to, I think, was Prince back in 1988. Um, and... It, no, it is. Really? I think it might be, actually. <laughs> it's not just about sort of music events as well. I mean, you're a big football fan, obviously. So how would you feel about going back to a football stadium and watching a match with 70,000 other people right now? Oh, well, bless you, Matt. I mean, I've never done that. I'd hate to do it in the first place. I've always watched my football on TV. It's the best place to be. Um, but, yeah, okay. But, but, I mean, I'll open up my, my, you know, young person live event fixation yeah i i would miss i mean if let's say woodstock you know uh, these big um events had been online it really wouldn't be the same thing but we have seen this shift i mean if you look at uh, gaming platforms like fortnite uh, open world platforms they're featuring a lot more live entertainment. They're featuring a lot more concerts. We've had um, uh, kind of rappers and uh, EDM DJs doing live sets within those platforms. And as Julian was saying, it allows people from all over the world to attend these events. Uh, we're seeing, uh, I should have looked up to, to find the name, actually. There's a club, I think it's in uh, London, that's uh, trying to combine... Uh, virtual reality clubbing with live clubbing so some people can attend the club and the dj performance on their computers and there'll be a giant wall in the club that allows them to kind of virtually interact with uh, people who are actually in the, the physical audience of the club oh as well so oh. we're seeing these kind of hybrid models where people are trying to marry the the two things together um but just to your your point as well julian about film festivals of course uh, the cinema chains have already gone through this kind of uh, transformation even before the pandemic they were seeing their business model being eaten into by all of the new content premiering on the uh, the streaming platform so we've seen uh, the cinema industry reacting by having all of these different kinds of theaters theaters that have bean bags instead of traditional seating or they might have a specific theme to the deck or it might be shabby chic we've seen child friendly uh cinemas with you know toys and play areas and that kind of thing so we've seen that evolution happening within the the cinema industry uh so i just wonder if it's time for the the festivals to start looking at, at different models and again that that idea of uh, like you said allowing people from all over the world to come in and purchase because cam to your point about uh the f and b and all of that that kind of thing you know the that loss of revenue stream if you don't have to spend all that money on physical infrastructure you don't have to spend on security you don't have to spend on fencing you don't have to spend on uh, uh, a lot of the, the kind of staging and all of these other facilities that you need to house 100,000 people on site, 
then actually your costs come down massively. So it is actually possible to look at generating revenue from these kind of online business models. Yeah, well, let's I, I wrap it up. But I would just say that um, I, you and I, Matt, were of the age where we, we did do all these things. We have done these things. So we can sort of confidently feel... Oh, we, we could we could happily replace it with a more online experience. But if I was 17, 18, I've already missed an entire year, a really valuable year of my life, a year when I would have been allowed to start going out to do these things. And, and yeah, I'd, I'd be like desperate to go and be amongst other people and, um, and be in a real life um, cr crush as opposed to a, an online virtual reality one. Just to that point very quickly, there, there is a generation of people who have only experienced live music through platforms like Fortnite. So the digital generation is not necessarily wanting to go out to these in-person events. So there is that generation of people whose idea of live music and live performance, whether it's theatre or whatever, is actually to go and view it through the screen in their bedroom. Mm. Julian, are you one of those? I am half of half. I did. I, I, I love gigs and I love being lost in the throng of it. But I also realized it isn't completely safe. And a lot that a lot of I did go to a lot of gigs alone. I don't think it was the best choice. I do like the idea that a lot of younger kids who do want to experience live music have that option of doing it online. I think um, it also opens up a lot of um, different sorts of things that can happen. I think Gucci is collaborating with Roblox at the moment. Little uh, Lil Nas X, the rapper, he did a, a thing on Roblox. Um, you know, it's like lots of, lots of little fun little things that I, it's kind of exciting. But yeah, I, I get that, you know, your youth is, is being stolen away. But also, like, we, it's new stuff. It's, yeah. it's, it's completely new. And that's cool. Yeah. I'm fine with that. I love it, Julian, with, when you say a whole bunch of things. I have no idea what you're talking about. I was worried if I should. <laughs> Roadblock with Lil Nas. <laughs> I don't know. You'll tell me later. Um, so we move on, though, to uh, another new thing. Uh, high tech, very high tech, people. Um, we're top number two, NFT, non-fungible tokens. When I heard about these things a couple of months ago now, they became a big news thing about three months ago. And, uh, and I really tried to understand it. I, and I tried to do research, but I, the first thing was like, I must ask Matt Armitage. <laughs> if I understand it correctly, um, it's the digital format, purely digital, where you can give uh, ownership to, oh, I'm going to give up, Matt. What, what, is, <laughs> what is an NFT? But more importantly, what are the implications? Okay, an, an NFT is uh, essentially a, a form of cryptocurrency in a sense. So it's a, a bit like Bitcoin or Dogecoin or any of these things that you see Elon Musk uh, betting on on his uh, Twitter feed. So the artwork and the NFT are not necessarily the same thing. Uh, you create the non-fungible token, uh, which is a, essentially a, a watermark for your piece of work. So you go to a, a specific site and you pay for that particular token to be mined or created. And then once you have that token, you link it to that piece of digital artwork that you want it to walk, watermark. So it's basically uh, a tradable copyright symbol that says that that piece of digital work you've got is the original piece of work. And it's not just, say, a, a JPEG or a movie file that somebody else has downloaded. Right. But it is, um, I mean, things like memes are being... Um 
NFT'd, if that's the right way to say yeah. it, uh, websites, I believe, web pages. Yes. Uh, I think an artist recently sold an artwork that was a single pixel uh, that was uh, NFT'd, and I think he sold it for about a million dollars. Uh, <laughs> we're seeing, you know, enormous sums of, of money, and it's very much uh, the, the Wild West at the moment. So, for example, if uh, you wanted to, you could turn the video recording of our session now into an NFT and sell it to the highest bidder, whether that be for uh, four ringgit or four million ringgit, um, I'm guessing probably somewhere in between. But uh, the higher end, the higher end, definitely. Yeah. You don't necessarily need to own the artwork in order to attach an NFT to it. So the NFT doesn't convey uh, original ownership. So for example, I could take the Abbey Road cover and attach an NFT to it. And if someone is stupid enough to buy that from me, then that's a, a transaction I've made. Uh, so we do have these uh, copyright issues that are coming in because people are taking other people's work. I think Banksy is one of the artists who's complained that other people are attaching NFTs to digital to, to, to his stuff. Yeah, and and selling it, but that's more uh, that's more an, an issue of stupidity on the be on <laughs> behalf of uh, the person who buys it. Because but if you're if you're buying it, if you're paying money, you got to buy it from somebody. Yes. Right. So if you're not buying it from Banksy, who the hell are you giving your money to? Some well, imposter. Well, that's the whole point. I mean, the the point of NFT is like any blockchain technology. It's uh, it's actually a digital ledger. So you see the the transaction trail. So in theory, it's uh, supposed to be about transparency. So you can see every transaction that it's made. So uh, Beeple is one of the artists who's uh, come to prominence with NFTs. I mean, he's made tens of millions of dollars over the last few months selling his digital artworks. So you can actually see that the NFT chain starts with Beeple. So you know it's one of his works. Right. Also, one of the things with NFTs is depending on what platform you buy them from, there's also a repeat payment for the original owner of the token. So for example, any, you know, when art's currently sold, the original artist doesn't normally get any of that, that further sale. They only get the percentages from the original sale. With NFTs, the original artist is guaranteed a 10% cut of any future transaction of that piece of artwork. Oh. Julian, ask your questions about NFTs that you've always wanted to ask. It, it really, it really is. I'm trying, I've got 10 questions. Um, you know, it, it seemed like it kind of popped up really. I know that they've kind of been around for a while, but they, they sort of, you know, blew up when people started, you know, getting in on you know, Elon Musk and stuff. But um, if I'm remembering it correctly, re earlier on a, a month ago, um, the, the whole thing about NFTs and what was so important about them was that it increased accessibility to these to these artworks. But it really doesn't seem like that anymore. It does, you know, with everyday changes, it does feel like, well, I'm old, I own this now, it's mine. And, you know, someone's really just holding a receipt that says that they do own it, but they don't actually. What happened to that? Does that, we do, we, is it still, you know, making things more open for more people to be able to see? Is that still a thing? I think that we have to look at that word open um, with a, a little bit of suspicion. So when we talk about the open internet, for example, we talk about companies like Facebook and Google. Uh, it's not necessarily open. We're talking about just their 
them giving us free services, but charging us for data. So when we talk about open and accessible, often it means open and accessible to the people selling the artworks. So what we've seen are some artists like Grimes, for example, who's uh, Elon Musk's partner, uh, conveniently, and uh, they have sold uh, NFTs of their, their works. They've repackaged albums. They've come up with, um, uh, you know, little tokens that can be uh, can be sold. And there are lots of ways that you can do this. Uh, you can either auction them off at the highest price. But one of the things that uh, some artists are doing are doing a, a little bit like the limited edition drops that street brands like Supreme do. So Supreme drop those, uh, uh, you know, small ranges of clothing on a weekly basis to, to pump up sales. So what we've seen artists doing is doing timed sales. So you can buy that particular artwork as many copies as it's possible to sell within, say, a given hour. But once that hour is finished, then you won't sell anymore. So those will be available at a lower price. So they're, they're more accessible in the sense that they're lower priced, but it's open in the sense that it's open to the artist maximizing the profits that they can make from, from their works. Okay, well, I, I got one final question then, and then we wrap this one up. Uh, so NFTs, when, if, will this NFT thing really impact my life? Well, again, the, the impact is not necessarily from what we're seeing at the moment. The impact is from the blockchain technology itself and what the blockchain can do in the future. So what we will see in the future, I think, is the crossover of NFTs being able to uh, watermark and copyright uh, works in the physical world. Uh, it can also help with uh, things like uh, fake news and spoofing. If the costs for the NFT, the, the mining of the, the NFTs come down, you could see, for example, every article from the New York Times being watermarked with an NFT so that you can see that it hasn't been doctored or adulterated. The same with, with pieces of video. So we're seeing deep fake video, we're seeing edited video uh, to that the misrepresents the information. So this technology could be used to authenticate and verify content in the future. Oh, cool. Sometimes, Matt, you terrify me with technology, but today you've actually managed to make me feel not quite so terrified. Has he? Yeah. Really? Julian, it's just, you, do you feel it's, no, like it's it, gone too far? What? It is. It, it feels like it has. And it, it's, all, it's all happened so quickly. And it, I also know it's ruining the environment with all of the... With with all of the 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 energy that's required to even do all this, it feels so terrifying and uncertain. I don't know. Yeah. Oh no, I'm scared again. Well, no, it's, it's interesting <laughs> for that point, Julian, because there have been a couple of cryptocurrencies that have come up recently that have claimed to be uh, green and to use less energy to uh, oh. to create. However. <laughs> <laughs> They've tend to uh, the 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 mining factories for those currencies have tended to be based in China, and it's actually led to a sh shortage of the GPUs, the graphical processor units, because they've been buying up so many that it's led to this global shortage in uh, chips and GPU units because they're all going to mine these NFTs. Wow! So Great. A, a butterfly flaps its wings to create Bitcoin in China and the whole world. Yeah. Well, we're going to leave NFTs for now. They'll, they'll be in a neighborhood near you soon. But we're going to go be and talk about what to me is actually the, the important topic, which is whatever happened to rom-coms. 
uh, in a moment here on A Bit of Culture, BFM 89.9. And we're back with myself, Cam Raslan, Matt Armitage, and Julian Yap. And now, Julian, uh, a question I've been wanting... I actually... I've been really stunned by this myself. Whatever happened to rom-coms? What happened to rom-coms? I'm so excited that you actually noticed them because there are a few, um, you know, it's just people around me and I've just, I, you know, just over the last few days while I was thinking about this, just went, what was the last rom-com you watched? And it, it's always, you know, well, I watched, you know, When Harry Met Sally or I watched, I watched Notting Hill because those are the big favorites. Well, but I, I want to know, I want to find new ones. I always, I always want to find the next great rom-com right? They only come, you know, you, you get a really good rom-com maybe every five, 10 years. And it seems like there aren't that many anymore. And um, I was trying to look online to look for any information, you know, just trying to see what, where, where they dropped, because it does seem that, you know, the mid, obviously there was the big 90s rom-com boom, um, particularly in the UK, but in the US, you know, it felt like maybe early 2000s to mid 2000s, it was just rom-com city. It was how to lose a guy in 10 days, Valentine's day, uh, 51st dates. Um, they, and, and it just dropped very significantly after that. And I found some data online, um, which by the film producer called Stephen follows. And he does, um, you know, some film, uh, research and data. He does reports and stuff. And he has a great blog. I would recommend that stephenfollows.com. And, um, this report, was done in 2018 so he's only got data up till then oh and this is just english speaking us uk um he hasn't done the that just because that's where he's based and is a producer there so he hasn't got that information but um he did realize that um in 2001 the number of rom-coms that were being produced out of the um a percentage of the rom-coms being produced of the total number of films was 18 percent by 2017 that was five percent Um, but then that was also because box office receipts were falling as well by 2017, even though romantic comedies were being um, produced. Because the question is, is it because audiences don't want romantic comedies or is it because directors don't want to make them anymore? And it was, you know, up till 2012, they were still being made, even though that percentage of total films, even though they were falling um, in general, do- domestic box office numbers were falling and especially um, for when you, you you put that against the graph together, I'm looking at the graph now. The the space is huge. It's like a, a good 10% gap in box office. So you know people weren't going to the cinema anymore. And and I can't I couldn't find any other information online about what caused that because obviously it's you know it's it's anyone's game. But the thing but, with the rom the rom com is that you say that um, people not going to the cinema, box office receipts down. But the rom com. It doesn't really cost much to produce. Though. No, they don't. No. Yeah, I mean, there's no, there's not really stunts. There's no CGI. There's no. I mean, I guess you got to, you got to, you got to go fly off to Paris, or at least you got to have a, a, a scene at the end <laughs> in an airport in New York, and someone's about to go to Paris. Um, but um, it, it's, it just doesn't seem like a really expensive. Uh, yeah. No. And rom-coms were always, um, you know, middle of the middle, um, not too high budget. They were fodder most of the time. They did come out in the summer when people had that free time to go to have cinema visits and and they, they turned them out so quickly. But um, the only thing that I, this might be wrong, this is me as a consumer um, thinking this might be it, but they dropped around 2012 
2013. And the only thing I can think of that happened that time was Marvel started coming out. The Avengers came out in 2012, which was the big cinema event of the year. And um, I think Harry Potter, The Deathly Hallows Part Two came out that year as well. And you go to the cinema for big experiences. And also because well, going, to the, the, going to the cinema is expensive. And I remember the last few cinema visits that we, you know, the last few films that came out um, 2019 when we went to the cinema was um, for a rom-com was long shot in 2019 I think which came and left within two weeks I think um, they cost so much to it cost so much to get these films into the cinema in the first place that they can't last the long time that they can as much you know and, and they have to compete at the same time with you know the new Black Widow movie so mm. um, and then mm. they show up on on streaming services so quickly but yeah well, well, well Matt you're, you're obviously um a rom-com fan you've got your, your floppy <laughs> hugh grant hair now <laughs> um are you a fan though i'm a, i'm the picture of a romantic lead <laughs> no well i i actually went into a, a clubhouse chat uh, a, a few uh, weeks ago that was talking about rom-coms and I, I i went into the room thinking you know i hate rom-coms and after listening to them talk about the movies i was like well i've watched that movie i like that movie. I think what I perceive to be rom-coms, which is the kind of Notting Hill type thing, which I'm not a fan of. I'm not a fan of that Richard Curtis genre um, <laughs> at, at all. I mean, I, I just don't get it. But I watch a lot of the kind of gross-out type things. So for me, you know, I I watched like the Adam Sandler ones and Judd Apatow as well. His movies are really funny. And most of his movies tend to fall into that rom-com genre uh, yeah. albeit tenuously you know um what is it uh is it 50 first dates or 30 first dates i can't remember the adam sander one is you know oh yeah i've watched that movie so many times and it's ridiculously sappy um and uh, i loved uh, warm bodies which of course is the uh, zombie rom-com and there was uh, another uh, uh zombie rom-com with um uh, Aubrey Plaza from uh, Parks and Rec, uh, which was uh, pretty good that I, I watched recently. So I do actually end up watching uh, a lot of rom-coms. And of course, you know, the, uh, the, the classics when Harry met Sally and, uh, uh, but I, I tend to find the, I prefer the US ones to the British ones. The British ones is too much sentimentality. The US ones I tend to find the writing is a little bit sharper and there's that much more of that edge of black humor in them. Yeah, who did who did Bridesmaids? That's a rom com, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. That that's the point. I mean, I love Bridesmaids. I love those gross out movies. But there's that area where uh, is it a rom com or not? Because I would put Bridesmaids alongside something like American Pie, and most people wouldn't class American Pie as a rom com. But to me, those kind of movies sit in the the same genre and a lot in that same bucket, along with Bridesmaids, that are just hilariously funny. and they have that, you know, that, that plot device of revolving around uh, a wedding or whatever, but they're not necessarily a traditional rom-com. Mm. If I might posit an idea then for whatever happened to the rom-com, I think you're absolutely right, uh, Julian, that the, uh, the Marvel comics really kicked in. But I wonder if, um, obviously, your main audience for a, a rom-com is going to be female, pretty much. I think we can safely say. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, date nights, etc. And uh, at a certain age and i think that the the demographic for cinema going demographic has gotten younger and younger and younger Mm -hmm. um and but also conversely also 
older. So there's like an old group and a young group. But that age where the rom-com really works, uh, that audience, they're not necessarily going to the cinema as they used to. But there, there are areas where the rom-com really does exist. I don't know if you've noticed, but Hallmark, mm -hmm. the, the greeting card channel, <laughs> pumps out like a thousand Christmas rom-coms. They just descend upon Earth in about November. <laughs> and uh, they're, they're very wholesome. I mean, they're really kind of right-wing trash, but, but, but they're also rom-com-y thing and very formulaic. And you settle into, I mean, the great thing about the rom-com is it is formulaic and it's a very comfortable blanket. But if you go to, say, South Korea, the, the, the rom-com still exists in cinema, but very much on TV. The, the TV drama romantic comedy. It's something that Richard, you mentioned Richard Curtis, the British um, writer who did uh, Four Weddings and a Funeral. He said that it was getting harder and harder to make, to write rom-coms because there was nothing to stop the characters uh, jumping into bed straight away. There was nothing to stop the characters in a modern age, you know, in London, he's in London. There's nothing to stop people just sort of like having a romance straight off. Um, and, and you need that kind of like, will they, won't they? They can, they cannot, which I guess, you know, in Indian cinema, you can do that because people can't just, you know, you can't just portray that. And, and also in, in South Korea, you can't really portray it. People don't, you know, people, after like 50 episodes of your drama, they might hold hands, maybe. <laughs> <laughs> so, I, I mean, maybe in Asia it can still last because it's, it's so much harder for people to get it on. Sorry, Matt. Yeah. Well, no, I mean, just to that point, I, I think that may be one of the reasons I prefer the, the American ones. And if you see the shift in the US rom-coms, they're much less about that traditional relationship. They're much more about drugs and alcohol and partying and hooking up and something coming out of that behavior, because I think that kind of social behavior shift happened there first. So when you look at the Judd Apatow movies for example uh, i mean you were saying that rom-coms are traditionally for for women but a lot of his movies are very much for the kind of frat boy guys there's just that romance element in the in the thing as well you know seth seth, seth rogan is not anyone's idea of a romantic lead he's you know the the guy that guys want to hang out with and uh, uh, spend the evening partying with and oh hey there's a really cool uh, uh, really cool girl in uh, their orbit and you know, the rest of the magic happens. So Julian, you, but you, you're still a fan. You still love the genre. Oh, no, of course. And I do try to look for, I, I'm, now I've had to go backwards. So I'm watching um, ones in the 80s and then I'm, I'm, I'm almost finished with the 80s. I'm going to the 70s now. But um, 70s uh, were not a rom-com decade. They weren't, no. Yeah. So the 80s had, had quite a few and they really explored it a lot. They did um, you know different subsets? So you've got Moonstruck, which is very very American Italian Italian American. Um, you've got Crossing the Lancy, which is super duper um, Jewish. Um, you know, very New York. It's it's there are so many opportunities still. And um, just very quickly to go back to what you said, um, I do think, um, like Matt said, you know, American US, UK comedies they were they have been a bit. I don't know. I guess me. You know, people don't want to see perfect things anymore. People want to relate to what they see on screen, which is why, why people like Seth Rogen keep getting jobs. Um, yeah. But that's also, um, people want that fairy tale. They want to see that fairy tale, which is why the Korean, so for example, the Korean dramas, which are so popular and they churn them out so quickly and they're so long. So there's so much to 
to just get into it's because they're so cliched and they're so um they're too too perfect they're very um, pretty i mean they're very pretty they're super pretty there's not a piece of dirt inside there's no trash at all <laughs> um so after 2018 when sort of the streaming wars have really kicked off and especially over the last year um net i i only have um I, I only really keep up very, very well with what Netflix puts out. Netflix produced films are, which have to be very low budget, are a lot of the times rom-coms because they are, they, they're quick to produce and they're, they're cheap to produce. And people know Netflix for those bad, not bad, but you know, I can watch that on a Saturday night with a glass of wine kind of, kind of film. And they're all moving there. Um, oh. They have maybe one or two weeks in the cinema and they just go straight to the um, to the streaming services now. So it may, it, we might see completely that they're completely gone from cinemas, which I feel is really sad. That'd be sad. That'd be sad. No. Um, all right, very quickly then, uh, name, name each of us, name your favorite rom-com. Oh, I've gone <laughs> silence. I'll go first then. You mentioned going back in time. I would go back, all the way back to the 1950s. And um, any of the Rock Hudson, Doris Day uh comedies um or Hudson was actually famously gay but uh, the world didn't know that and uh one called pillow talk in glorious technicolor and uh it's uh, i i found it to be hilarious when i watched it back in the day i will watch that i've mm. never heard of that. i i would say uh, it's probably a toss-up between um uh, two winona Ryder movies oh nice choice nice choice <laughs> tell it man <laughs> and heathers and i know heathers isn't a traditional no rock, it's not but it is it is about a romance it's about a high school romance that becomes really really toxic um and uh and clueless as well i mean you know there, there's so many mm. yeah i was a big uh winona Ryder fan back then. <laughs> yeah uh julian I love Reality Bites and Heathers. I think they're incredible. Um, but they wouldn't make that today, you know? We wouldn't get a Heathers today. They tried to remake it and it failed instantly. Um, my, my, my OG favorite definitely is You've Got Mail. I think just in general, that's a perfect film, rom-com or not. I think that's incredible. Um, I do also really, for a more modern one, I think Crazy Stupid Love, but that came out in 2011. Mm. Um, if we want to have an even more recent one, which actually isn't about just white people, I think Always Be My Maybe on Netflix is great. I do not know that one. I'll check it yeah. out. Oh, and uh, there's The Big Sick as well, isn't it? Ah, yeah, The Big Sick's good. I do not know that one either. Okay, I'm going to check those out. So, <laughs> so many. Yeah, yeah. Okay, well, that's uh, the rom-com. May, may it come back. Um, and uh, But we move on now to the final part of the show, recommendations, where we recommend something that we think might be of interest. And Matt Armitage goes first. I genuinely don't have anything to recommend. I've like been living in this bubble of just watching old stuff over again. I'm back to watching horrible reality shows on YouTube and hating myself for it. I genuinely don't have anything to recommend. I've just finished um, uh, the Stormlight uh, or I've got through uh, four audiobooks by Brandon Sanderson from the Stormlight Archive. That's uh, 200 hours of uh, listening across for <laughs> 55 hours per per book uh, so i guess that's a, a recommendation if you want to lose three months of your life to uh, uh kind of epic fantasy novels the stormlight archive by brandon sanderson 
you know, when you when you listen to those, do you just sit there and listen, or do you walk around and do other things, read things? I mean, what do you do? Yeah, I mean, you know, I'm I'm occasionally doing uh, housework. Um, I listen to them in bed, obviously, as well when I'm going off to to sleep. Um, they're they're great for that because they don't. You know, you're not stimulating your eyes. There's no lights on. So you're just listening to it. Yeah, when I'm walking around the house, when I'm out driving in the car, um, while I'm eating lunch. Yeah. Wow, 200 hours later. Wow, okay. <laughs> so what, what was the name of the... Uh, it's the... the just, just look for the, uh, the Stormlight Archive by uh, Brandon Sanderson. So it's a, a series within his uh, Cosmere franchise. This is fantasy. Fantasy. Oh, yeah. Ep- epic fantasy, I think the genre is. Oh, Julian's nodding, you know. You no, know. no, no, I didn't. I was oh. about to ask, is this nonfiction? Cam only only um, recommends nonfiction books. Because that's all there is. <laughs> uh, you know, it's wizards and sorcerers and uh, all that kind of stuff. But they really existed. That's, yeah, they just, did. Yeah. Just well, tell me that and then I'll check it out. Yeah. <laughs> Okay, so uh, my recommendation is actually a repeat recommendation. I recommended it once already quite recently, and it's so good that I want to recommend it again. Also, because like Matt, I've not done anything and I can't think of anything. (laughs) But the one thing I have done is I've been watching this really stupendously good um, detective drama series called Mayor of Easttown, uh, starring Kate Winslet. It's set in Pennsylvania or something, and... um, it's just brilliant. She's brilliant, and it's brilliant. And um, the, uh, uh, the final episode of Seven's about to happen next week. But um, you know, folks, if you get the chance, and if you if you have the time, just go back to the beginning and watch it. And it's it's it, it's just brilliant. And um, so it's uh, Mayor of Easttown. It's uh, it's an HBO production, so you can catch it on HBO Thingamajig, whatever it's called. HBO Plus. Do I want to say Plus? Or am I mixing that up with Amazon or something? HBO Max, HBO Plus, I'm not sure. Is there? Oh, no, yeah, there's an HBO. HBO Max, yeah. HBO Max. Um, <laughs> well, yeah, I just gave away that I, I certainly haven't been <laughs> paying for my... Anyway. <laughs> uh, <laughs> but, uh, you know, it's it's really good. And uh, check it out. Mayor of Easttown. M-A-R-E. Which um, is her name. Yeah. 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 Her name Marion or something. It's short for Marion. So, uh, Julian, what's yours? I have been consuming things, but I, like I said, I've been in the rom-com mood. I know Mara Feastown's been is great. I've heard a lot. There's Oscar, you know, there's there's awards buzz. My my family's been watching it. Um, but uh, I I found a really great rom-com that came out <gasps> in 2020. Um, it is a it is a teen one though, so it it would put some people off. But I don't think it would have to be. Uh, it's called Spontaneous, and it's um, it stars. Uh, two teen, two teenagers. Um, one day they're in school and people just start spontaneously combusting. So, um, what else do you do in the time you have left as as teenagers than to get together? Um, it's great. I think it's um, it. They wouldn't have to be teenagers if they didn't have to. And also, um, um, it doesn't feel. I think a lot of the time when you do. Uh, rom-coms now or even any films now with any teenagers it does feel like it was written two years ago two year, two or three years ago because it took that long to get the script made um so i think it's a great one it's on amazon that sounds a great premise i love it already spontaneous spontaneous right? they explode there's blood you can see the blood it's great awesome excellent that, that'll get matt 
Matt will be watching that. I, I'm, yeah, I'm going to keep that up. <laughs> he loves his zombies and stuff like that. I had a whole zombie weekend and uh, I thought I'd feel really depressed at the end of it. Uh, I ended it up with uh, Army of the Dead, the new Zack Snyder one. Awful, awful, awful film. Is it? Yeah. Oh, you're both, you're both, yeah, bad, huh? Okay, all right. Um, all right, well, that, that brings us to the end of this week's show where I think we've really tackled the big issues. <laughs> we have, we have. We have oh, NFTs. Yeah. NFTs. I've learned, I've cried. <laughs> everything so only remains now to thank uh my guests matt armitage thank you and julian yap thank you so much uh thank you both and uh myself cam Ruslan. and so please join us next week for another exciting episode of a bit of culture here on bfm 89.9 thank you for listening to this podcast to find more great interviews go to bfm.my or find us on itunes bfm 89.9 the business station.